You're listening to the Gateway Franklin Church Podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. doesn't matter when a song was written. An old song doesn't make it holy and special, and a new song doesn't make it holy or special. It's who we sing about that makes it holy and special. Well, happy 4th of July. I wore my socks for you. uh, Actually, my favorite pair of socks. They're actually the most comfortable pair of socks I have. Um, And I have checked. They are American-made. That's important. If you're going to wear stars and stripes, let's make sure they're American-made. You know it's the 4th of July season, one, when gas prices go through the roof. I I know that by, by strong history. And then also you see the red tent on the corner. If you live near us, and you red town in the corner selling fireworks, um, I've decided not to sell fireworks as a missions fundraiser because since we do Christmas trees, he already doesn't like us, and I thought that we'd keep it at least halfway, and we don't sell fireworks too. Um, I uh, I inaugurated a fireworks a fireworks um, kind of show, if you will, uh, at our church, former church in Atlanta, and last night or Friday night they they did it again. That's that would be uh, 28 years straight of the church doing a patriotic musical with, with fireworks. And one of our PR pieces years ago, we had door hangers we put on our neighbor's doors when we first started doing it. And I said that it's, a, it's more than a show, it's a loud thank you. And so when I hear, when I see and watch, um, you know, all the energy going off, all that money, I know how much each of those shells cost. And so um, when each of those shells go up and blows up, I see them as loud thank yous. A thank you to countless people who sacrificed their freedom in order for, our countless, for other countless lives to live free. And our celebration of freedom is not without acknowledgement of that cost. Um, I think we forget that freedom was and still is a process. Um, the colonists began fighting for freedom in April 1775. They didn't sign the Declaration of Independence to July of 1776. And the Revolutionary War wasn't concluded until September of 1783. So I think the fight for freedom begins before anybody fully recognizes it, and it lasts a whole lot longer than anyone had envisioned. uh, On July 4th celebration speech in 1852, Frederick Douglass honored America's founding father's exemplary leadership and, and courage, and yet he still chastised America for not living up to the ideas of freedom it so proudly espoused. Um, Douglas was a visionary, and, and I say that because it takes vision and fortitude and loyalty to embrace someone or something still in process, and that's what he did. Um, and our country is a markedly different place after that 170 years, even though there is still progress to be made. I have been in about a dozen countries and have been a missions pastor to people in far more than that. And even though, what I, well, what I have found is even though we have an imperfect system of government run by imperfect people, hands down, I am um, honored, humbled uh, to have been born in this country. Because even though it's still a country in progress, um, our system of government provides the, the, the kind of freedom and value of human life that I have not experienced in any other country. It is easy to romanticize other places. It's when you have to live there in other places 
do you see? Now, there is a, there is a difference between patriotism and nationalism. Okay? Na- nationalism will say that I'm the best, we're the best, where patriotism will say I'm proud to be here. Right? There, there, there's, there's a difference. You, you can be proud of where you have been born. You can be proud of your heritage without then elevating yourself above anybody else. Because even though I have been in many countries with a system of government that was oppressive, I wasn't any better than the people I was around. All right? So, so things get confluted, convoluted in our day and time, and definitions get blurred and opinions get swayed and loud voices seem to clamor along. Um, but I'm glad to be here and experience the kind of freedom that we have. But I want you to hear me today, because this is not a message on our national freedom, is that my number one concern is not a preferential political system, not when I was traveling or when I'm here, but it's spiritual freedom. It's spiritual freedom, and it's the discipleship transformation that takes place by the Holy Spirit in our life that brings the kind of freedom that we are all after. And that spiritual freedom fight is waged. It's a real fight. It was waged, it was won, and it still wages on. And the way we stay spiritually free and transformed spiritually is all to do with a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 61 that Jesus himself quotes, if you will, about himself in Luke 4. So the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty, a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. That is a rich, rich passage of Scripture. Because only God himself can turn poor, brokenhearted captives who are in a state of mourning and grief, sitting in a pile of ashes into oaks of righteousness. Only God can do that. And he does it for the story of his glory, to demonstrate his power and what he can do with surrendered people. Amen. So I woke up on July 1st. I do, unfortunately, what most people do. The first thing I looked at was my phone. And when I looked at my phone, I saw one, one, July 1st. My first thought was, unbelievable. Half of the year is gone. And then I woke up enough to try to put a healthy spin on it and said, I have half a year left, right? Because this is, to know this, it's a, it's a professional hazard for pastors. We measure everything by Sunday, right? So there's 52 of these. We only get 52 of these a year. And this one's number 27, number 27. So, so in essence, I could say that we've lost half a year or half a year is behind us. Or I can say, what do we do on Sunday the 27th Sunday. What do we do with this? And the, the word God gave us as a congregation at the beginning of the year was forward. 
So it, it made me reflect, am I, in, am I more forward? Am I in a, in a more forward position than I was when I started January? It, you'd have to go back and look at the archives. And Some of you take exceptional notes, so you probably already know. But are you more forward in your family? We talked about being forward in our family. How, how have we changed as mom, dad? How, how, are, we, how are we will change as a husband, uh, as a wife? What, where is our relationship with God? Is it, is it a different place? Or have we made progress? Are we moving more forward into transformation than we did in January? It's, you, spiritually, it doesn't help us quitting in February when we start in January. Most people do that in gyms, right? Gym membership goes through the roof in January, and it starts tapering slowly off. Um, I know in January, when we go through the fast, I lose my weight that I gained over the fall, right? And about right now, I'm about where I started in December, and that's probably pretty close to it. Forward, what do we do what do we do with Sunday number 27? So my prayer was that, that, that we would make the kind, of, the kind of adjustments, the kind of reflection that would drive us out of this building with the kind of energy that it might have driven us into this building in January. Championship football teams, make the, the championship football teams are the ones who make the best adjustments at halftime. It, it's, it's, it's not just who plays the best half of football. It's who is at the end of the game, is the, the, their score is higher than the other ones. And that happens so many times with championship coaches and championship teams. They may limp into halftime. But in halftime, they get the kind of quick therapy that's needed, both physically and emotionally. And they make the kind of defensive and offensive adjustments necessary. And they start the second half a lot differently than they ended the first half. Now, is that a lot to ask for in one Sunday? Yes, right? I mean, that's a lot to ask for in one Sunday, but it's not a lot to ask from our God. So posture yourself, not just in kind of the specific message of today, but posture yourself as this is the middle of your year, the middle of our Sundays. And there is still so much more that God wants to do in you, with you, through you, and it can be a, it can be another it can be another start. We don't just get one fresh start a year. This could be the the second fresh start of the year. Psalm fifty seven is our psalm today. It's another psalm written by David, and again, context is everything. First Samuel chapters thirteen through the end of the end of the, the book gives the historical context of what we're going to talk about today. But Psalm 57 gives the emotional context of what's happening. So some of the historical context is at the age of 15, Samuel goes to anoint a new king because Saul has turned his, turned his heart away from God. And this is why I think it's important that David receives this mantle uh, that God describes him as a man after my own heart. Well, what does that mean? It means that David was a pursuer of God. That David pursued God, David wanted to be in the presence of God, David wanted to be transformed by God. It does not mean that David was flawless before God. Because we find out that he is, right? Like we all are. But he's he's defined by his pursuit, how he pursues after God. And at 15, he gets anointed as this new king, and yet a king is still present. This is where we find him um, 
kind of wandering into the battlefield, if you will, trying to check up on his brothers and bring them some food. And he sees this Goliath defying the armies of God. And and he is quite offended that this giant would speak so negatively about Israel and Yahweh. And he says, if nobody else is going to do something about this, I'm going to. Now, come on, this is a teenager in front of a well-trained and a huge army. And he steps forward and he takes the tool of a shepherd And he downs the giant. Now, the story ends up stopping there in your flannel graph stories because the next gets pretty gruesome because he takes Goliath's sword. As his teenager, no doubt, he had to take it with both hands. He probably had to leverage it up a little bit with a knee. And boom, there goes the head of Goliath. You're talking about a hero. It's kind of like instant hero status becomes David. And for the next seven years, David goes back and forth between taking care of his sheep. I'm sure his dad said, I'm sure his dad, when he got home, said, okay, son, that's a great story. However, we got two flocks on that northern hill, and you haven't been with them for, right? That's what dads do, right? Great, son, happy for you. Now get back to work, right? So, so but, and that's David's life for the next seven years. He goes back and forth between the palace and the fields. He goes to war. Um, he, songs get sung about him. I mean, he is living the life. And you've got to believe he's like, I'm arrived. I mean, at some point in time, he's got to be really happy with himself. And just when it seems as if, hey, yeah, hey, you know what? Samuel was right. I am going to be king. Saul gets jealous, tries to kill him a couple times, and David's on the run for the next eight years. Next eight years. 15 to 22, he's living the life. 22 to 30, he's wondering if his life is going to end. And it's in that context that he writes Psalm 57. In that context, we have Psalm 57. Now, the whole, again, the history of that's recorded in 1 Samuel 18 through 30. And, and what I wrote here is what we can perceive sometimes in our life as a hard stop or as this unavoidable detour, God uses as process. So David hasn't done anything wrong. He didn't miss God. He didn't misunderstand God's call to be king. He wasn't rushing the process. So why the hardship? Why the holdup? And all I can tell you is that God's plan is bigger than us and that we need every God experience to prepare us for his plan. And so this is what I found out to be true. When we are ready to move, we are never as ready as we think. But when God is ready for us to move, we can never be more ready. There's so many times in my life I thought I was ready for the next thing. And God knew I was not ready for the next thing. Unfortunately, what happens is after you have to run for eight years and hide in caves... When God says it's time to move, many times you don't feel like that you're now. Now you feel disqualified. And it's amazing. In your disqualified state is God qualifies you. In your qualified state, he wants to show you how much you still need to learn. Isn't this a happy 4th of July message? It gets worse. Hold on. Because Psalm 57 is called a lament. And I'll teach you about lamenting. So the heading of this psalm says, For the director of music to the tune of Do Not Destroy... When he had fled from Saul into the cave. And so let's read Psalm 57. Have mercy on me, my God. Have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. 
I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster is past. I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. He sends me from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends forth his love and his faithfulness. I am the midst of lions. I am forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into themselves. My heart, O God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be, let your glory be over all the earth. And I want you to tell you up front, I want to get to Psalms, I want to get to uh, verses 5 and 11. I want to get us out of this cave of running to where we can exclaim, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. That statement comes from just as a deep place as, Oh God, have mercy. They don't come from two different wells. They don't come from two different depths. It comes from the same person, the same mouth, in the same prayer, in the same circumstance. A lament. A lament isn't a complaint. So I want to give you the different definitions between complaint and lament. A complaint is a statement that a situation is unsatisfactory or unacceptable. Complaining isn't a winning life strategy, and it never works in bringing life. Complaining is a precursor to excuses. Excuses lay blame for problems at someone else's feet. Complaining is a passive-aggressive approach to difficulties, specifically and life in general. And I contend that complaints are barriers to relational, relational intimacy. All right, that's a complaint. Now, a lament, I'd ask you how many complainers we have in the room, but I don't want to embarrass you. A lament is a type of prayer. It is a passionate expression of grief and sorrow laid at the feet of someone who can change and redeem anything and anyone. A lament is a proactive approach to any life hardship. Those are my definitions. So while complaining becomes a relational barrier, lamenting is an open door to intimacy. All right? Have mercy on me, my God. Have mercy on me. For in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster is past. You know, in in the 66 books here, we don't have one book named Complaint. But we do have one named Lamentations. We have a whole book that gives us great big lament. But smack dab in the middle. I mean in the middle. By the way, Psalm 117 is the middle of the Bible. Read that this week. Middles seem to matter to God. He finds a way, right? Um, Last week, the middle of of the psalm was... Um, and your presence is with me, I believe, and you will go with me. So, so in the middle of Lamentations, we find this. Lamentations 3, 22 through 26. 
Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him and to one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. I'm in the middle of this six-chapter lament. We get some of the most refreshing verses of Scripture. Laments will always lead us into the presence of God. I'm not sure complaining does such a stuff. So I want to teach you how to lament and hardship. Hardship. I want to teach you how to, how to transform and move from a complainer to a lamenter. Complaining is ineffective in a Christian life because complaining puts the spotlight on you. What, what, what isn't working for me? What isn't working out for me? What, I, I become the center and the spotlight when I'm complaining and when I'm complaining to God. Lamenting, however, is powerfully effective because it places us and our circumstances in the refuge of God. It, is, it, it, it might seem like a minor distinction, but it is not. So, have mercy on me, my God. Have mercy on me, for you and I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster is past. I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. The first time David uses this phrase, to take refuge, it's in a specific tense that is a reference to something he's done in the past. Okay, So he's taken, he's taken past refuge. And so because he's taken past refuge and he's received refuge in that, then he can look forward and say, even in this place I find myself in, I will again take refuge. All right? So his past behavior of taking refuge leads him into a present um, uh, path of taking refuge. And not just hiding. This is not, this is not hiding. Taking refuge is not hiding because he tells you where he takes, where he takes his refuge. All right? He takes his refuge under the wings of God. Now listen, he's writing this, or at least he's reflecting on this, from a cave. Okay? So you'd say, you're hiding. Okay? Well, he was hiding. He didn't want to get killed. But this psalm tells you really where he is hiding. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a regular repetitive metaphor in Scripture under the wings of God. And, and it would be an agrarian kind of concept of, of watching a, a hen really kind of swell up, if you will, to gather those chicks and to protect them, protect them from sight. You can't see them, so, so they're, not, they're not vulnerable, right? But there's also, there's also another connotation to under his wings. And this would, this would fly us much more um, directly into, into a, a Christ image. So when the Ark of the Covenant was built under specific directions of, of God, the top, the top of the Ark had two cherubim, two angels with their wings stretched out towards one another. And in and, and between that was called the mercy seat. And when the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and he would be, be before this ark, the very physical presence of God would descend into this room and he would descend, God would descend on this mercy seat. Don't, mercy seat. Don't think about him coming in, sitting down, propping his legs up, mercy seat. When we hear about the Shekinah glory of God, it was, it was this tangible, unavoidable presence of God. When the temple is first dedicated and the Shekinah glory comes down into the temple, nobody could stand up. I mean, the, the weight, glory means weight. The weight of God was so heavy in the room that nobody could stand up. 
And so, and so in, you know, in this mercy seat, then I'm under the wings. I am under the protection of the mercy seat of God. God has come in with mercy. We would understand the mercy seat in a New Testament sense of the cross. We'd understand this in the sense that Christ died for us. And he died for us in a state that we weren't worth dying for. Scripture says that we were enemies to God, and yet he dies for us. And so we can take refuge. We can take refuge in the person who loved us when we were not lovable, who makes us whole and presents us as his brother, as heirs to the kingdom to his father. This is a lament. This is not a complaint. He's not complaining to God about where he finds himself now and how could he possibly be here after the great start that he had had. It is not, can you help me figure out, God, what you messed up or what I messed up, right? The, the core of the lie, I tell you, Satan tells us, is that we're not enough or God's not enough. We're not good enough or he's not good enough, all right? And, but David isn't in this state of complaint but he is in a state of lament. This is a hard place to be. He doesn't want to. He wouldn't have chosen this path. He wouldn't be hiding in this cave. But even though he's hiding in that cave, he still takes refuge under the wings of God, telling us that these wings are still available for us. And then he says, verse 3, He sends from heaven and he saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends forth his love and faithfulness. I taught you this many times before, but even in Psalm 23, when I said, and surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, I said that was his hesed. His loving faithfulness is his hesed. This is a Hebrew word. You should just, just, just remember. It's just five letters. Two of them repeat, so it really it's easy. God's faithfulness and his love, they follow us, and, and, and he's saying that I receive, I'm receiving this faithfulness, even in this place of refuge. Complaining diminishes the impact of past experience, and it elevates the situation into a relational wall-like structure between us and God. Because when I'm complaining before God of my circumstance, man, all I'm doing is building bricks between my heart and His. I've contended this for years. Can God handle our anger? Yes. Can God handle our disappointment? Yes. Can God handle our frustration? Yes. But what I contend is I don't know how much of that I can handle. Can God go through any wall I build? He most certainly can. But boy, the walls that I've built in my lifetime are very difficult for me to get through. I have found that I actually can't get through those. I have to begin dismantling those. I put them up brick by brick. I got to take them down brick by brick. But lamenting, lamenting puts God above my circumstances. It reminds, in my lament, I'm reminded of his past. And it drives me forward into the future because I remember because he did it once. What God did, God still does. Verse four, I'm in the midst of lions. I'm forced to dwell among the ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Is this just David exaggerating? Is he, has he just let his, po- his poetry run amok? Um, no. 
I'll tell you why. He wasn't being pursued by a bunch of amateurs. He had fought in this army. He had led this army. In some respect, I bet he had trained some of this army. It goes, I don't know, I don't know, they're blindly following Saul, or Saul had said so many lies about David, but he understood who he was up against. This was no straw man's army, and this, this is how he frames it, um, their teeth and spears like arrows. And how long do you have to be running, probably four years here, before you just get flat out exhausted from running? And this is, this is what extended seasons of hardship does to you. It's what seasons of hard does to you. Vince Lombardi had a famous quote that says, fatigue makes cowards of us all. That we, ju- we just get to a place where we don't have anything else to give. And I think this is where David finds himself. I think this is the power and the emotion of this psalm. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. We have a tendency to run out of our energy before we even begin to tap into God's. That, that's, that's a natural response that we do. We think we can handle it. We can handle it. We can handle it. You don't have to wait till you're buried to lament. You can begin a lament even at the beginning. Because what I want to teach you is laments lead to praise. This is where David lands twice. His laments lead to praise. Complaining just leads to more complaining. It just, it just doesn't make any progress. So how do, you, how do you maintain when you're exhausted? Isaiah 40, 28 through 31 tells us how. It says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary, and they will walk and not be faint. How is that possible? It tells us, but those who hope in the Lord. At at your most tired, at your most frustrated, at your most worn out, at your most lost, the way we move forward is we maintain a hope in Christ that what he did, he still does. And so David ends those first first four verses and he takes a pause to say, Be exalted, O God. Let your glory be over all the earth. I mean, where does he have to lift himself up to to get to that point? I don't know. But he gets there. Be exalted, O God, above all the earth. The circumstances doesn't take away God's glory. Your circumstances don't take away God's glory. A a complaint puts God on trial. A lament longs for God to tell a story. A complaint puts God on trial. A lament longs to tell his story. So verse 6, they spread a net for me. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. Um, Again, this is like waking up and seeing July 1st and going, half the year's gone or I got half a year left. Um, this, This no doubt comes out of a reflection where 
on, on two different occasions, but on this probably this occasion, David and his, his ragtag group of actually a large number, I mean 600 people get drawn to David's side. They're hiding in this cave, and the army, the army of Israel is trying to still track him down, and they, they take a rest break outside of this cave. And literally, the scripture says, Saul enters the mouth of the cave to relieve himself. You know, you just read, read the Bible long enough and, and you'll realize it just, it tells some very interesting things. David comes up behind Saul and cuts off a, po- a portion of his robe, waits till Saul leaves and the armies are further away. And David comes out and says, hey. Now, his army, his closest to him said, you blew it, David. God has delivered Saul into your hands, and you have missed this opportunity. And David, no, 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 I haven't. Saul's God's anointed. God, God's, God will deal with Saul. I, I'm not put here to deal with Saul. So he's able to write this by he's he's able to write this because he, th- this is not an indication of a missed opportunity. And it happened twice. He sneaks into their camp on one particular time. He sees this as God is completely. God is completely in control. He's demonstrating to me this on multiple occasions that this most powerful army, if he wants to, he can just wipe them out at any given time. And I say, now, Courtney, this is not your responsibility. This is my responsibility. But I want to demonstrate to you by this. I'm demonstrating to you that I can do this at any time, at any place. I'm in complete control. And David takes solace from this. He doesn't see this as a missed opportunity, and that's why he writes in this. They, they were out to do this to me, but they have fallen down into the very thing that they set out against me. And so we circle back then to the end game of a lament. The end game of a lament is praise. Complaints don't end frustration. They perpetuate it. Complaints look for instant and immediate Resolution, and that is an unhealthy and immature approach to life, and it's an unhealthy and immature approach to our spiritual life. The beauty of a lament is that you never end up at the same place you did when you started. I always end up at the same place I started when I complain. And I think this is the big takeaway of, of, of transforming our prayers our interactions with God, away from complaining to God into being it being fine and healthy to sit and lament with God. See, I complain about God, I complain at God, but I lament with God. There's a difference. He says, my heart is fixed, O God. My heart is steadfast and confident. I will sing and make melody Awake my soul, awake harp and lyre, I will awaken the dawn. I have contended for years here that it is better to to start your day before your day starts. How many of you, you, you've been in such a hard place at times in your life, you couldn't even sleep? Anybody? Right? You couldn't even sleep. You You can't turn your brain off. Your, your brain just goes on and on and on, and you don't really rest well. And David is in a situation probably uh, at least physically more dire than maybe anybody that we've, ever been, that, that we've ever been in. And David's talking about awaking with such a spirit 
a such confidence, a steadfast heart, that his heart hasn't wavered. It's fixed. What a powerful word. Fixed. My heart is fixed. My heart is not going anywhere. My heart is not going to be shaken by this. My heart is fixed. And as such, what's going to flow from my fixed heart is I'm going to praise, I'm going to be in a pattern of praise before the creation of God wakes up and praises. Right? I'm, going to, I'm going to awaken this dawn. Yes, the, the scripture says that the, the creation of God pours forth speech. Right? It pours forth speech. And David's saying, you're not going to get in ahead of me. At least not in that time, um, that time zone. <laughs> right? In that time zone, he was going to awaken the dawn. Start your day before your day starts. Whatever time you spend before your day starts with God in lament... With praise, I'm telling you, it's it's redeemed time and time over and over and over throughout the day. So then he ends, verse 9. I will praise and give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your mercy and your love and kindness, his hesed, are great, reaching to the heavens, and your truth and faithfulness to the clouds. David understands this from a a leadership perspective. Private praise, when it gets expressed publicly, transfers that confidence in God to others. Private praise, when it goes to public praise, it transfers that confidence in God to others. I don't stand here on the front or kneel or do anything else for anybody to see during worship. I I worship, but I understand that my worship, public worship, it matters. My private worship matters more, but it doesn't matter more to you. you. You don't see that. You might experience that when I will preach or when I talk or counsel with you, but it is the the public praise that transfers the confidence of God to others. And David knew he had a mantle of leadership. You have a mantle of leadership. Your private praise is necessary in order to develop a public posture of praise and worship. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Be exalted, O God, above the earth. It is a declaration that tell your story My story, the only reason my story matters is because my story is in the context of his story. And he's chosen me and he's chosen you and your private praise turned to public praise, especially in a lamenting season, transfers the confidence, the steadfast heart, it translates. It translates to your spouse. It translates to your kids. It will translate to your employer. It will translate to your employees. A steadfast heart and spirit translates. So David is hotly pursued for four years. At this psalm, he still has about four years left. That's an important contextual piece to understand. That he didn't somehow reach an end and now all of this praise was bursting forth out of a lament. He still had four years left. He wasn't as hotly pursued, but he still had to be in exile for four more years. A lament 
is a powerful tool. So, Pastor, how do I make the shift from complaining to lamenting? Well, I don't have all the answers to that. In fact, it really wasn't until this week I put the two and two together. So, here's at least an approach to take. The first is to take refuge. That's where we find David first. Oh, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O oh Lord. I take refuge. Running from pursuit and hiding from pain is exhausting. So remember God's past faithfulness. He is protective of you and merciful towards you. If you don't have a past experience to pull from, borrow someone else's until you build your own file. Taking refuge is different than complaining. Second, change seats. Change seats. This story is bigger than you. Humility keeps God as the central figure. Be exalted, O God. I want you exalted more than I want my way. That's going to change a complaint to a lament. The third one is to stay put. Resolve that you will stay in prayer until your heart changes. I I love that about the psalm. Be merciful on me. Be merciful on me. Be exalted, O God. He, he, he He stayed in the prayer until he was changed. Complainers just want to get something off their chest. Complainers just want to be heard. You wonder why your prayers are short? Maybe it's because you're just downloading and dumping and then you're leaving. Lamenters want to be comforted. I'm sharing with this Lord because I want to express the heaviness of my heart in this moment, but I'm not finished. I need you to do something for the heaviness of my heart. I'm here because I'm taking refuge in you. I'm here now because I am subservient. I'm putting myself under you. Do what you need to do, but I need to be comforted by you. That is not a complaint. That's a lament. A complaint, we just fire off what we don't like and what we want to change, and we go about our business. I don't think that's a prayer. Stay put. Stay until something changes in your heart. God can change your heart. It really doesn't matter how you begin the prayer. If you stay there long enough, God will change your heart. And the last I just said, praise up. Take refuge, change seats, stay put, praise up. A fixed heart fixes hearts. A steadfast heart secures hearts. A fixed and a steadfast heart praises God and praise sows confidence in other people. So, in our response today, I want to, you know, sometimes we just jump right into a song, but at the beginning here, I want to give you at least a minute pause to lament, to, to, to take whatever, if you find yourself in that dry or hard or pers- being pursued season, that you, you take a moment, do your best on how to turn that into a have mercy on me, oh God, instead of what do you think you're doing, God moment. And then we'll shift into singing. I see a victory. You can shift into, you can receive communion. Um, you can come to the altar. But where I want to lead you to today is it's okay to sit in the ash But that's not where God intends to leave you. So that's why you don't complain because you're in the ash. You lament because of the ash. But you allow allow that to be transferred into this is your story. This is your story. My heart's fixed on you. And I take refuge in you. We'll transform into that kind of praise 
And as you feel that change, I just encourage you to, to stand in our worship time. So, Father, I don't know where this psalm has hit and those watching online or those in the room today. I know that, David, this came from a very deep place in him in a very real time. And it's been preserved these thousands of years, Lord, so that we would learn we would learn the value of a lament and we would learn we would learn the heart of our father and so some may find themselves in a very um, in a very dark cave and they've been spending time trying to figure out why and how and father today i pray that you would give them the refuge that they seek as they turn from trying to figure it out and be angry about it, be disappointed with it to a group that will lay it at your feet and ask for your loving kindness to make a change in their heart. Only you can do that, God. And I ask that you do that now. We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today.